This week, Diamond Sports seeks $600 million to launch GTC product. Seadrill New Finance completes one-day restructuring. Nordic Aviation reaches 88% RSA support. Supreme Court takes on UST fee increase. Given the Environmental Protection Agency's recent release of proposed renewable fuel volume targets and extensions of certain renewable fuel standards, or RFS, for this week's Deep Dive, we are for listeners a replay of our September 2021 webinar on PBF Energy, which has over $700 million of accrued and future incurred renewable fuel standard liabilities for 2020 and 2021. Rio's coverage team provides an overview of PBF's business, including PBF's increased RFS compliance costs due to dramatically higher market prices of RFS-related renewable identification number, or RN credits. The coverage team also discusses the mechanics and current state of the RFS program, the potential financial consequences of PBF's escalating environmental compliance costs, and the potential treatment of RFS obligations to hypothetical PBF bankruptcy. It's Friday, January 14th. Diamond Sports and certain secured creditors have agreed on the principal terms of a new money financing and recapitalization through which DSG intends to raise $600 million in new capital and to defer the cash payment of a portion of its management fee to Sinclair. The company said it expects that combined the transactions will provide approximately $1 billion of liquidity enhancement over the next five years and enable it to strengthen its balance sheet and better position itself for long-term growth. DSG has disclosed a related transaction support agreement between DSG, Sinclair, and holders of approximately 49.7% of the aggregate principal amount of the existing term loans, 53.7% of the aggregate outstanding principal amount of the 5.375% senior secured notes, and 16.7% of the aggregate outstanding principal amount of the 12.75% senior secured notes. The transactions require consent from note holders of at least 66.66% of the aggregate outstanding principal amount of the senior secured notes and a majority of outstanding loans. The company said it expects to commence an exchange offer and consent solicitation for holders of the secured notes in January. Under the terms of the TSA, the new $600 million super priority first lien term loan credit facility would mature in May 2026 and would rank first in lien priority on shared collateral ahead of DSG's loans and commitments under the Diamond Credit Agreement and existing secured notes. All existing eligible term lenders and secured note holders would be offered the opportunity to exchange their existing term loans into senior secured second priority lien term loans with the same or substantially the same maturity, pricing, and other economic terms as existing term loans, but with more restrictive covenants. Similarly, existing secured notes may exchange their notes into senior secured second priority lien notes, which terms would be substantially consistent with the second lien credit facilities, but with more restrictive covenants. Lenders under DSG's existing revolving credit facility would be offered the opportunity to exchange the entire amounts of their respective revolving loans and commitments into a senior secured second priority lien revolving credit facility. The liens in favor of any holders who fail to participate in or consent to the exchanges would be subordinated to the liens securing the super priority facilities. Cedral New Finance Limited, or NSN Co., the issuer of the Cedral Secure Notes to 2025 and 11 of its affiliates, filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas on Tuesday, January 11th, with a pre-packaged plan of reorganization in hand. And Judge David Jones confirmed the NSN Co. debtor's plan on Wednesday, January 12th, overruling a due process objection lodged by the Office of the U.S. Trustee, which took aim at the breakneck speed of the debtor's cases. The NSN Co. debtor sought to confirm the prepackaged plan on the expedited timeline to substantially marry the effective date of the NSN Co. restructuring with the effectiveness of the larger Cedrill Limited restructuring, according to debtor's counsel. The separate Cedrill Limited debtor's plan of reorganization was confirmed on October 2021, but is expected to go effective as early as later this month or as soon as possible after that, according to comments made at Wednesday's hearing. 
The NSNCO prepackaged plan contemplates amending and extending approximately 622.7 million of senior secured notes and issuing pro forma equity NSNCO to the senior secured note holders in an amount that will dilute the existing equity in NSNCO held by the sole shareholder, non-debtor NSNCO affiliate Cedral Investment Holding Co. Limited. The plan was accepted by 99.99% in aggregate principal amount of senior secured notes claims who voted and holders of approximately 100% in aggregate amount of outstanding Class 7 interest, according to the first day filings. Judge Jones confirmed the NSN co-plan without entering a separate due process order, which was the approach taken by Judge Marvin Isger in two other speedy prepare confirmation cases, Belk and Carlson Travel. The due process orders in Belk and Carlson Travel had extended certain deadlines, including the opt-out deadline, in addition to other provisions aimed at addressing Judge Isger's due process concerns in those cases. At an uncontested hearing Thursday morning, Judge Kevin Hennekins gave interim approval to the Nordic Aviation Capital Chapter 11 debtors' proposed $170 million dip financing facility, authorizing a $60 million interim draw. Debtors' counsel Kirkland Ellis informed the court that approximately 88% of the debtors' funded debt now supports the restructuring support agreement, up from approximately 73% as of the petition date. Counsel added that the debtors anticipate that figure increasing to 90% shortly. The dip lenders are made of certain existing lenders to debtors' NAC 29 silo, with Silverpoint Capital and PFA Asset Management as participants. The dip lenders would loan directly to NAC DAC, which would in turn fund the participating debt silos. The debtors are also working on reaching a transaction with the parties that do not support the RSA, ECA, New York Life, and Kirk, which have not consented to priming liens or the use of their cash collateral. Debtors' counsel told the court there are no third-party payments due from those silos until January 28th, but in the meantime, NAC DAC will fund those silos if there is an exigent need. The final dip hearing is set for February 3rd. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday granted certiorari and will review the Fourth Circuit Siegel v. Fitzgerald decision arising out of the Circuit City Store Chapter 11 proceedings. The case involves a question of whether a 2018 increase in fees paid by debtors to the U.S. trustee program violated the bankruptcy clause of the U.S. Constitution. Circuit courts have split in this question with the Second Circuit and Tenth Circuit finding a violation and the Fourth Circuit and Fifth Circuit finding no violation. The issue arises from an October 2017 law which substantially increases the quarterly fees paid by Chapter 11 debtors to the UST, which are calculated as the percentage distributions made during each quarter. The increase was meant to ensure that the fees were sufficient to fund the UST without taxpayer contribution and to fund temporary bankruptcy judgeships. Beginning in January 2018, the UST calculated quarterly fees pursuant to the 2017 amendment for all Chapter 11 cases, including pending cases where quarterly disbursements totaled $1 million or more. Among the decisions precipitating the Supreme Court's review is a rare joint opinion from two judges overseeing the MF Global and Sun Edison cases in the Southern District of New York, which upheld in February 2020 the constitutionality of the 2018 increase in quarterly fees payable to the UST's office that filed their cases and confirmed plans prior to the increase becoming effective. The SDNY found that the fee increase does not violate constitutional restrictions on retroactive laws because it's not actually retroactive, stating that the 2017 amendment imposes increased fees on disbursements made on or after January 1, 2018, and does not change any substantive rights under the plaintiff's plans because the plaintiff's plans expressly require them to pay the quarterly fees post-confirmation. In opinion in the Exide Technologies case, Judge Mary Walrath of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the District of Delaware also rejected positions the fee increase is an improper, retroactive, excessive, and non-uniform user fee when applied to disbursements by debtors under a plan confirmed prior to the amendment. Top Red Stories this week included, Restructuring activity may resume as companies approach end-of-runway, airlines, commercial real estate, energy infrastructure, auto health care sectors in focus, post-confirmation litigation increases, non-provided deals to continue. 
Trimark's settlement with lenders could pave the way for next round of attack on lender protections. District judge in value invalidates non-consensual third-party releases in a Santa plan. DBSI sues SunEdison to a lenders in New York court, seeks to cancel out hundreds of millions of potential liability to lenders litigation assignee in California action. And now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning, Owen. It's a holiday-shortened week ahead. As such, it's a bit on the quiet side. A last breath, you might say, before earnings start to kick in. And here's what we have. Wednesday, January 19th, oral arguments in Collins versus Yellen. A 13th interim distribution hearing in the matter of Bernard Madoff. A PWM retention hearing objection. And also in LTL management, there's a hearing related to the reinstatement of the original TCC. And Friday, January 21st, an extension hearing in LTL management and a settlement hearing in LATAM Airlines. And that is it from me. Thank you for listening and back to New York. Given the Environmental Protection Agency's recent release of proposed renewable fuel volume targets and extensions of CERT Renewable Fuel Standards, or RFS, for this week's Deep Tab, we offer listeners a replay of our September 2021 webinar on PBF Energy, which has over $700 million of accrued and future-incurred renewable fuel standard liabilities for 20 and 2021. In the webinar, Reorg's coverage team provides an overview of PBF's business, including PBF's increased RFS compliance costs due to dramatically higher market prices of RFS-related renewable identification number, or IN, credits. The coverage team also discusses the mechanics and current state of the RFS program, the potential financial consequences of PBF's escalating environmental compliance costs, and the potential treatment of RFS obligations in a hypothetical PBF bankruptcy. Okay, today we will discuss the financial, regulatory, and restructuring issues facing refiner PBF Energy. I'm Kevin Eckhart, Senior Legal Analyst for America's Core Credit by Reorg, and joining me on today's webinar are Adam Rhodes, Senior Distressed Debt Analyst for America's Core Credit by Reorg and Wahoo Football Legend, and Hannah Dykeman, Junior Financial Analyst for America's Core Credit by Reorg and Serial Hoodie Borrower. Please note that if you'd like to ex- access this webinar again later, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page later today for Reorg clients. Uh, next slide, please. On the agenda for today, we will provide an overview of issues facing PDF Energy. The company faces a number of financial and regulatory challenges, which could lead to a restructuring which would itself raise some interesting questions about regulatory challenges and claims in Chapter 11. We will answer questions at the end of the slide, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. Okay, let's get started. Adam, before getting into your financial analysis, could you please explain to me why all my old UVA law colleagues had weird commemorative chairs and paddles in their offices? Uh, thanks, Kevin. Uh, I'm not sure if I could help with that question. Um, I'll give it some more thought, but let's get started with a quick review of the company and highlight some of the regulatory matters facing PBF. So PBF is a roll-up of primarily high-complexity refineries. Um, the company's six refineries are spread across the U.S. in four different uh, refining regions or PADs as they are referred to by the EIA. Uh, together, the six refineries combined to provide a total throughput capacity of about 1 million barrels per day. As further detail in the moment, PBF Energy also owns 40% of publicly traded PBF Logistics common units and its general partner. PBF Logistics or PBFX operates product storage, uh, pipeline, terminal, and other assets. The the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic shock had major consequences for PBF. 
Uh, utilization of the company's facilities dropped below sustainable levels in total. Uh, refining burned over a billion dollars of free cash flow in 2020. Although refining product uh, demand has improved, the company now faces significant regulatory challenges that will affect its cash generation. PBF's compliance costs related to the Renewable Fuel Standard, or RFS, increased fourfold to $810 million during the LTM period ended June 30th. Based on current compliance costs, uh, concurrent compliance credit costs, Reorg estimates that PBF could spend over $1.5 billion of cash to fulfill its compliance obligations by March 31st of 2023. Prior to recent compliance credit market relief, uh, price relief, uh, which we will discuss later, this total approached nearly $3 billion. Separately, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, or BAA, QMD, which is a mouthful, um, on July 21st adopted more stringent particulate matter regulations that affect PBF's Northern California Martinez refinery. PBF initially claimed that such uh, rules would cost the refinery uh, $800 million uh, in installing a, a wet scrubber to uh, decrease the particulate matter. Uh, now turning to PBF's operations on the next slide. As mentioned, PBF six refineries are spread across the U.S. Um, each of them, or four of them, uh, are on the uh, the higher complexity side, which gives them an advantage in processing heavier crudes compared with um, lower complexity refineries. The company's greatest concentration of refineries is in California, with its Torrance and Martinez uh, units, which were acquired in 2016 and 2020. Altogether, the six refineries represent approximately four, excuse me, 5.4 percent of U.S. refining capacity uh, by throughput, according to the, the EIA. Let's take a look at the PBF organization structure on the next slide. As touched on before, PBF owns PBF refining's operations and approximately 48 percent of PBF logistics. From a credit perspective, PBF holding and the entities below it which are in light blue on this structure, represent the credit support silo for PBF refining debt. On the PBF logistics side, the entities providing credit support to the PBFX debt are shaded in dark blue on the right. Additionally, PBF Energy Company, LLC, which is green on this structure, uh, provides the PBFX debt with a guarantee of collections. In a bankruptcy waterfall, this would give PBFX debt a claim on residual flows from the refining business. Uh, the next slide shows PBF Energy's capital structure, uh, which reflects this organization chart. Next slide, please. Uh, so, sorry, that's it. Um, go back one. Um, as shown at the top, PBF Logistics reported approximately $653 million, $3 million of debt as of June 30th, implying 2.7 uh, turns of net, net leverage at that group. Below, PBF Holding, which is the refining operation credit silo, uh, reported $2.8 billion of net debt as of June 30th. The company has minimal uh, a minimal amount of cash entities above refining and logistics. Combined, PBF Energy has an approximately uh, $5.4 billion enterprise value at current equity trading prices. Moving to liquidity on the next slide. PBF Logistics reported approximately $368 million of liquidity as of June 30th. Uh, for purposes of uh, today's discussion, we'll focus more on PBF Holdings liquidity 
which the company's disclosures imply was at $2.6 billion as of June 30th. PBF Energy's commentary on its liquidity at refining is somewhat unclear. Um, as shown in the blue, blocks, blue box, um, the PBF 10Q says that PBF Refining's revolver has more than $1.2 billion of borrowing availability, but this disclosure uh, is immediately followed with a statement that says, which includes our cash on hand. It is unclear if this statement points to the $2.6 billion of operational liquidity or $1.2 billion of availability. Using the borrowing-based disclosures in the credit agreement and its amendments, it is not immediately clear, clear if the availability includes a certain amount of cash. However, it is worth noting that the revolver's borrowing base includes, um, as it's termed in the uh, credit agreement, 100% of the cash and cash equivalents in deposit accounts subject to control agreements. That said, for purposes of our discussion today, and as shown in the table here, we assume PBF refining had available liquidity of approximately $2.6 billion at June 30th. Next, uh, we'll walk through a quick review of PBS formation and its refinery roll-up strategy. PBF was formed in 2008 by Blackstone, First Reserve, and Petro Plus uh, to acquire U.S. refineries. Subsequent to its first three acquisitions, uh, the company was IPO'd in 2012, and PBFX, the MLP, uh, was IPO'd in 2014. The summary of the company's six refinery acquisitions is shown here. Uh, PBF, PBS refineries were all purchased from major oil companies, including Shell, Exxon, Sunoco, and Valero. PBF has dropped assets from all these acquisitions, except for Martinez, to PBFX for a mix of MLP units and cash consideration. Turning to refining financial performance in the next slide. PBF. PBS refining unit burned approximately $1.2 billion of free cash flow in 2020 due to the pandemic demand drop. Refining free cash flow burn has improved in 2021 as working capital has provided approximately $400 million of cash. These benefits include the company's accrued, these, these working capital benefits include the company's accrual of environmental compliance obligations. As an aside, uh, refining requires significant working capital investment given its crude oil, raw material, and refined product inventory requirements. Additionally, refiners must maintain adequate liquidity to navigate the risk of potentially rising crude costs. Refining's, excuse me, refining's adjusted EBITDA has improved in 2021, but remains negative on account of its higher environmental compliance costs. Moving to PBF logistics financial performance on the next slide. Let's just take a quick look at this unit. Um, PBF logistics generated approximately 82% of its LTM revenue from intercompany contracts with PBF refining. Logistics has consistently generated adjusted EBITDA margins in the high 50 to high 60% range with limited CapEx requirements. The higher financial metrics reflect the historic uh, market multiple benefits to PBF from dropping cash flowing assets into this MLP entity. Moving back to the refining side. PBF breaks its refining unit into four regions, East Coast, Mid-Continent, Gulf Coast, and West Coast. Refiners are essentially low price, excuse me, low margin price takers. In refining, gross margins and profitability are heavily dependent on the relationship between the market price of refined products sold 
and the market price of crude oil input costs. This relationship between market prices, between the market prices of raw material inputs and products sold is captured in regional crack spread metrics. For example, PBF points to the dated Brent 211 crack spread as the benchmark crack for its East Coast refineries. This metric subtracts the New York Harbor market price of a barrel of gasoline and a barrel of ultra-low sulfur diesel from the price of two barrels of dated Brent. Higher crack spreads indicate uh, greater gross margin potential for refineries. As you can see in the charts uh, right here, the relationship between PBS regional adjusted gross margins and crack spread, uh, crack spread benchmarks has widened more recently. Low utilization levels, which limits Fixed, uh, fixed cost coverage and RFS costs, which merchant refiners have a limited ability to pass through, contribute to this relationship. Let's dive further into the cost impact of the renewable fuel standard on PBS costs. As previously mentioned, RFS compliance costs quadrupled in the LCM period ended June 30th. These costs are captured in PBS costs of goods sold and affect both its gross margins and adjusted EBITDA. Higher prices for renewable identification number credits, which are also referred to as RINs, are driving up these compliance costs. As shown here, in the first quarter, refining began generating positive adjusted EBITDA prior to <clears throat> uh, RFS compliance costs. As the company's increasing renewable energy credit and emission obligations uh, accrued expense account at the bottom of the slide indicates, these costs have not fully been paid in cash, and PBF will need to use liquidity to fulfill these obligations in the future. Hannah and I will more fully detail the RFS in a moment. First, let's take a look at PBF's debt trading prices in the context of its regulatory development. The prices of PBF refining three note issuances have been very volatile throughout uh, 2021. Entering the year, the securities rallied as the company moved beyond the pandemic's severest demand impacts. However, the bonds started leaking again in late June against the backdrop of RIN price pressure. And then following the previously mentioned uh, July 21st Bay Area air quality rulemaking, the bonds hit their 2021 lows. Since then, the bonds volatility has continued, but the securities have traded up on rumors of the EPA considering RFS relief for refiners. Hannah will now provide additional details in the Bay Area air quality rulemaking affecting PBS uh, Martinez Refinery. Thank you, Adam. As you noted, the regulatory environment adds complexities for PBF, starting with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, or the Air District. Um, the Air District is tasked with regulating stationary sources of air pollution in nine counties surrounding San Francisco Bay. In July, the Air District's Board of Directors voted to adopt amendments to Regulation 6, Rule 5, Particulate Emissions from Petroleum refi Refinery Fluidized Catalytic Cracking Units. The Fluidized Catalytic Cracking Units, or FCCUs, are complex processing units at refineries that convert heavy components of crude oil into lighter distillates, including gasoline. FCCUs are the largest single source of particulate matter emissions at petroleum refineries. And so like, the purpose of Rule 6.5 amendments is to further reduce particulate matter emissions. The amendments set limits to control total particulate matter 
and reduced flue gas components and pollutants known to increase total particulate matter emissions. So the amendments also established requirements for testing and monitoring to determine compliance. So Rule 6.5 applies to PBF's Martinez refinery and requires the refinery to meet the new emission limits by 2026. So although the Rule 6.5 amendments does not require the installation of a wet gas scrubber or any other specific technology, the Air District staff determined that a wet gas scrubbing or system would likely be required to comply with emission limits based on the facility's current performance and emissions. On the next slide, we'll look into the estimated compliance costs. And so during the rulemaking process, the Air District estimated a total capital cost of $255 million for the installation of a wet gas scrubber at PBF's Martinez refinery. The Air District noted the, that potential space constraints around the existing FCCU and the carbon monoxide boilers at the Martinez refinery. Um, and they stated that the, 25, the $255 million cost estimate assumed additional costs for the relocation of some equipment. PBS Martinez Refinery estimated that the installation of a wet gas scrubber would result in total capital costs of approximately $800 million, an estimate substantially higher than the costs estimated by the Air District, Air District staff. This contentious issue was debated throughout the rulemaking process. PBF commented that the Rule 6.5 amendments would present the Martinez Refinery with multiple practical, cost-effective, technological, and environmental challenges and, that, and the dilemma of shutting down. Consequently, Martinez Refinery filed a petition in California Superior Court for Contra Costa County on September 7th. Kevin will share his thoughts on the litigation later in this webinar, but on the next slide, we'll shift to review another regulatory headwind for PBF. The Renewable, Renewable Fuel Standard Program mandates the incorporation of renewable fuels into the nation's transportation fuel supply. The EPA implements the program in consultation with the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Energy. The EPA calculates and establishes renewable volume obligations or RVOs annually based on the statutory targets and projections of gasoline and diesel production. The standards are expressed as a volume percentage and are used by refiners and gasoline or diesel fuel importers to determine their renewable fuel volume obligations. There are four percentage standards under the RFS program corresponding to the four separate renewable fuel categories, which are one, biomass-based diesel, cellulosic biofuel, advanced biofuel, and the total renewable fuel. Under the program, refiners and gasoline or diesel fuel importers, known as obligated parties, must demonstrate their compliance annually. The obligated parties can certify compliance by either blending renewable fuels into transportation fuel or by obtaining credits called renewable identification numbers or RENs to meet their RBOs. The RFS programs for renewable fuel standards are nested within each other as shown in the image on the bottom right. And therefore fuel with higher greenhouse gas reduction threshold can be used to meet the standards for a lower threshold. For example, fuels or RENs for advanced biofuel can be used to meet the total renewable fuel standards. We look for, further into RENs on the next slide. So the life cycle of a REN is described and, or can be described in three steps. So a REN is attached to a gallon of qualifying renewable fuel when it's produced. Um, the REN is separated from the renewable fuel when it's blended with gasoline or diesel fuel. 
And then that separated REN can either be submitted for compliance, traded, or banked for future use. Um, different renewable fuel types receive credit for specific numbers of RENs based on their estimated equivalence volume relative to ethanol. Um, and these RENs are valid for two compliance years. So that being the year in which they're generated and the following year. After that, the RENs expire um, or can no longer be used for compliance purposes. And next, Adam will further explain the fuel categories and corresponding REN prices. Great, yeah, thank you, Hannah. Um, the, as Hannah mentioned, the RFS includes four different fuel categories. Um, on this table, you can see the cellulosic biofuel category, um, and that must be fulfilled with D3 or D7 RINs, and the biomass-based diesel category must be fulfilled with D4 RINs. Um, the advanced biofuels category, which required uh, a 2.93% blending level, according to the 2020 RBOs, can be fulfilled um, with D3, D4, D5, or D7 RINs. Lastly, the renewable fuel category can be fulfilled with all the advanced biofuel decodes, as well as the D6 RIN, uh, which represents ethanol. For purposes of our later analyses, we assume that D5 RINs are used to fulfill the remaining advanced biofuel requirements after filling the cellulosic and biomass quotas. Similarly, we assume that D6 RINs are used to fulfill the remaining 8.6% of renewable fuel blending required in excess of the advanced biofuel requirement. As you would expect, advanced biofuel RINs trade a premium to non-advanced biofuels, uh, with D3 RINs trading at the highest premium. During the run-up of the D6 uh, RIN prices in recent months, which is shown in the next slide, other RIN categories experienced similar rises. As you can see here, D6 RIN prices have risen to five-year highs in 2021. Uh, prices peaked prior to a Supreme Court ruling that allowed certain small refinery exemptions, which provided uh, certain uh, RIN demand relief. The prices have fallen even further more recently on reports that the EPA will potentially lighten refiners' RFS volume obligations. Moving to the next slide, let's look at the drivers of the recent uh, rise in RIN prices. As we all know, the pandemic and mitigation me measures significantly decreased demand for transportation fuels. As a result of lower production levels, uh, total 2020 RFS blending volume requirements fell by approximately 1.4 billion gallons, according to the EIA. This is due uh, to the RFS's requirements uh, applying to refineries on a percentage of production basis rather than on a specific volume basis. We will jump into that concept in a second. Uh, despite the lower RFS volume requirements, the decrease in RIN generation outpaced the fall in RFS volume requirements by more than 800 million gallons, leaving the market with a 2020 RIN deficit. The EPA attributes the RIN price rise to uh, also to a few um, to fewer approved uh, new small re small refinery exemptions, and finally, the agency attributes the rise to uncertainty related to, the, to future RFS compliance levels. As we will discuss more later, uh, the EPA still has not released RFS compli compliance requirements for this year, 2021. Uh, this uncertainty might make market participants more reluctant to trade their credit supply. Uh, 
On the next slide, we return to the concept of the RFS's annual percentage standards. Refineries that are obligated to participate in the RFS derive their compliance levels from annual percentage standards. These percentage standards for the 2016 to 2020 periods are at the bottom of the slide. A refinery's re renewable volume obligation, or RVO, is determined by multiplying its gasoline and diesel sales uh, in a given year, production in a given year, by the annual percentage standards, in addition to fulfilling any deficit from the year uh, before. An obligated refinery can carry an RBO deficit into a subsequent year, but it is required to meet both years' compliance requirements uh, in that subsequent year. A ring can, and I think as Hannah mentioned, a ring can be used in the year that it was generated and also the following year. Let's take a look at the next slide for more specifics on compliance timing. Typically, compliance for a given year or when RINs are due is March 31st. However, the COVID-19 uh, related market disruption uh, due to the disruption on April 1st of this year, uh, the compliance deadline for the 2019-2020 years is extended. Compliance for the 2019 uh, year is due on November 30th of this year, and compliance for 2020 is due on January 31st of 2022. As mentioned when discussing the rise in rent prices, 21, uh, 2021 compliance levels have still not been released by the EPA. Assuming a standard compliance deadline for the 2021 RBO, compliance would be due uh, March 31st of 2022. This would make compliance for the 2019, 2020, and 2021 years due in a four-month span. With all these moving pieces and unknowns, uh, Hannah will now discuss the RFS rulemaking process in the past to more clarity. Thanks, Adam. So the diagram presents an overview of the RFS rulemaking process, um, really taking it through each stage. So initially the EPA will draft its, a proposed rule and submit that draft rule to the White House Office of Management and Budget. The OMB will conduct an interagency review um, to really gather input from other federal agencies while also conducting um, meetings with stakeholders to receive comments on the RFS program. When the OMB completes its review, the EPA will publish that proposed or the proposed volume requirements under the RFS program. And shortly thereafter, a notice of a notice of public hearing and a notice of uh, proposed rulemaking will be published in the Federal Register. So the EPA will conduct a public hearing to receive comment from interested parties. Um, Written statements and supporting information must also be submitted by the last day of the 30-day comment period, which is typically after the follows the hearing. Um, the EPA will consider all of that data and the arguments submitted in their development um, of either their response to comments and then also in their development for the final rule. So after um, the rulemaking will pro progress into the final rule stage and the EPA will draft a final rule. The OMB will conduct another review of the EPA's draft final rulemaking. And as a part of its review, the OMB receives input from interagency reviewers again. The OMB will provide feedback, including recommended revisions to the draft final rule before um, com completing its review. And after determining that there are no additional edits or comments, the OMB will conclude its review and the final rule will be 
date it's published in the Federal Register. Um, statutorily, RFS volumes um, are to be finalized by November 30th of the year preceding the compliance year. Um, but this statutory deadline has been exceeded um, many times by the EPA in the rulemaking process. So moving to the next slide, we'll go and we'll further evaluate the changes that occur throughout the rulemaking process. So this image shows all the stakeholders, um, or shows some of the stakeholders, not all of them, uh, that can submit comment or provide input throughout the process. And of course, gathering and aggregating all of the data and information can take time. But the EPA considers that input and then makes judgments um, about the appropriate standards to propose and then set based on the governing statute and the discretion that the statute provides the EPA. So looking at the bottom chart, um, we'll really see the changes that occur throughout the rulemaking process from the proposed RVOs to the final rule RVOs. And so relevant to the current RFS rulemaking, we'll shift to the next slide to review what's happened and what's, what are the next steps in the current RFS rulemaking process. So on August 26th, the EPA delivered a proposed rule to set annual volume and percentage standards um, to the OMB. We know that because that information is publicly, um, it is public or it is released. While at this time, the proposed rule is not public information that is confidential. And so during this time, the OMB will conduct its interagency review and conduct meetings with interested parties. So based on the OMB's website, the office has held 16 meetings with industry stakeholders, including the Coalition for Renewable Natural Gas, the American Bakers Association, um, the National Biodiesel Board, SICA Petroleum, and PBF Energy are just a few of the meeting stakeholders. And so the immediate next steps would be for the OMB to complete its review of the proposed rule um, and after which the EPA will publish those proposed volume requirements. But that step has yet to occur. And of course, I'm sure as many people are aware or have seen, um, there has also been significant, like while these events have transpired, there've been significant noise around the proposed rules. Reporting on the standards, which Adam will elaborate on next, has spurred congressional statements and letters to the Biden administration. And notably, Senator um, Chuck Grassley was even expecting the proposed volumes to be released last Friday on the 24th. And that is based on the expectation that the OMB typically complete will complete its review of the proposed rule within 30 days, which last Friday was the last business day before the essential 30-day timeline expired. Um, but the rules have not been published yet, so that's our next step. Moving on to Adam next to further elaborate on um, some reporting around the standards. Great, thanks again, Hannah. Um, uh, we've already touched on the RFS's annual percentage standards, but let's take a deeper look at the calculation of the measure, um, just in the context of uh, the rumors that uh, Hannah had mentioned before. So there's a lot going on in this slide. Um, the top of the slide displays the equation to determine these percentages. The bottom left table provides the variables that were used to determine the 2020 percentages. 
And finally, the bottom right table is the actual 2020 percentage standards. Just to summarize uh, the top equation, the percentage standard is determined by dividing the total U.S. volume required for each renewable fuel category by the projected consumption of gasoline and diesel fuel in the lower 48 states and Hawaii. The denominator is adjusted to exclude renewable fuels and projected production by exempt small refineries. The review of these calculations, uh, like I mentioned, is to place the widely reported RBI uh, rumors into context. On the next slide, we review what has been reported. Uh, first, typically, we might not spend much time on unsubstantiated rumors. However, uh, rent prices have traded down hard in these reports. Last Wednesday, Reuters and other news sources reported on a document uh, purportedly detailing an EPA proposal with specific amounts that would retroactively decrease the 2020 RBO, decrease the 2021 RBO to a level below the initial 2020 level, and raise the 2022 RBO above the level of the uh, 2020 RBO. OPIS Biofuels uh, similarly tweeted a table of proposed volume obligations which matched the totals in the Reuters report. The tweet also detailed the purported levels for the remaining fuel categories. As Hannah highlighted, these reports followed the EPA delivering its proposed rule to the White House Office of Management and Budget on August 26. D6 RIN prices fell to below a dollar for the first time since February on the heels of these rumors. To determine how these volumes translate into compliance costs for PBF, REARG used its best efforts to back into implied percentage standards. As detailed in the right-hand box, REORG used actual and projected consumption data uh, from the EIA, assumed the give forward SRE volumes remain constant to 2020 levels, and made certain other assumptions uh, on blended fuel, uh, blended rene renewable fuels. Um, certainly, some of these variables are subject to change, um, and um, we'd love to have more clarity on them. But the next slide shows REORG's estimation of the implied annual percentages based on these figures. Uh, while certain variables are unknown, our best thinking is that these alleged volumes uh, would decrease the 2021, uh, sorry, the 2020 and 2021 percentages by 15% and 4% percent respectively from the prior uh, final 2020 rule. Such decreases would provide meaningful relief to PBF and could even potentially allow it to use already acquired 2020 RINs for 2021 compliance. Casting additional uncertainty on these rumors, however, the Renewable Fuels Association and ethanol trade group last week refuted a re report that it shared proposed uh, that it shared proposed RVO figures, calling them fake. But for us, the bottom line is that the credibility of the rumors remains unknown. However, they would represent a very big win for merchant refiners. While trading volumes are unclear, the price of rent has decreased meaningfully following the reports, as mentioned. We would also like to have some additional clarity on the other variables, like I said, in determining the percentage standards. Uh, we have spent a lot of time on the work into the RFS today, so let's, uh, so beginning on the next slide, let's begin uh, putting into financial context for PBF. Without additional uh, specific clarity from the EP on RBOs, PBF provided guidance on its 2021 net rent obligation in the context of the 
RFS's 2020 uh, rule levels. Similarly, the company is accounting uh, based on these 2020 levels. Under these assumptions, PBF CFO guided to, to a 2021 net rent obligation between 550 million and 600 million gallons. Based on the RFS rules discussed earlier, if PBF fully satisfies its 2019 and 2020 obligations at their upcoming compliance deadlines, as PBS CFO has indicated that the company would, PBF would have the flexibility to defer its 2021 obligations. The 2021 compliance obligations could then be fulfilled as late as March 31st, 2022, along with the 2022 obligations. If the ETA, in fact, does provide enough relief, PBF might opt to use its current liquidity to fully satisfy its 2021 ARBO and provide itself with additional financial additional flexibility in fulfilling the 2022 RBO. In the table below, we estimate PBF's annual RFS compliance costs based on varied D6 RIN, uh, RIN price levels and um, a variety of net RIN volume uh, obligation requirements. The compliance costs also factor in the estimated effect of other RIN decodes, such as the D3, uh, D4, and D5 codes. Based on the implication that PBF can defer its 2021 obligations through 2022, the table here also includes PBF's estimated combined second half 2021 and 2022 cost estimates. The various RIN volume and price assumptions drive a wide range of potential annual costs, which range from $329 million to $1.4 billion. On the following slide, we compared these obligations with PBS other commitments. In addition to the range, in, in addition to the range of uh, the RFS obligation costs, Reorg estimates that the that through the first quarter of 2023. PBF will also be obligated to spend approximately $1.6 billion on run rate capital expenditures, cash interest, and California AB32 greenhouse gas credits. We do not include any amounts for the Martinez particulate matter fix since substantial compliance costs would likely fall outside of this time frame. In the table here, we sum the totals of these cash cost amounts um, along with PBS RFS compliance costs under low, mid, and high case scenarios to estimate the company's non-operating obligation, obligations from the second half of 2021 through the first quarter of 2023. Next, we compare these amounts with PBF's reported June 30th operational liquidity, liquidity of $2.6 billion, net of $500 million, which management cited on the second quarter call as, reasonable operating, as a reasonable operating cash level leaving the company with an estimated uh, $2.1 billion in net liquidity. From this, we impute the necessary annual run rate pre-renewable uh, fuel standard costs uh, adjusted EBITDA and working capital that PBF would need to generate to fulfill these obligations. Uh, as an aside, uh, we estimate that PBF does not have any remaining Perry First Lean debt capacity and has I guess $150 million of junior lien capacity. Under these low, midpoint, and high case scenarios, PBF would need to generate $1.4 billion 
uh, $580 million and $511 million, respectively, of annualized pre-RFS adjusted EBITDA and working capital through the first quarter of 2023. On the next slide, PBS recent pre-RFS adjusted EBITDA is shown. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, uh, refining operating performance is highly impacted by top-down macroeconomic factors, which affect demand for refined products. These factors complicate go-forward projections. As shown here, um, on a historical basis, PBS refining generated approximately negative $193 million of pre-RFS costs adjusted EBITDA during the LTM period ending June 30th. Eliminating the pandemic affected 2020 for comparison purposes, PBS generated an annual average pre-RFS adjusted EBITDA of $930 million during the three-year period ended December 31st, 2019. Notably, this period does not include any EBITDA contribution from the company's 2020 acquired Martinez refinery, which upon the acquisition announcement, PBS guided to generating between $275 million and $375 million for annual EBITDA. Based on recent RIN pricing relief and the assumptions in the, slide, the previous slide, PBF must approach a return to its pre-pandemic operating level to satisfy its obligations. To the extent that uh, rent prices return to the recent elevated levels, PBF will need to exceed its pre-pandemic performance to meet the obligations by Q1 of 2023. On the next slide, we provide um, additional sensitivities for implied necessary operating performance uh, with varying rent prices and volumes. Comparing the implied necessary RFS adjusted EBITDA is below with the recent price history of the DSEX really shows the importance of the EPA's decision on required future volumes. An EPA decision to provide volume relief would obviously help PBS with their volume obligation, but perhaps uh, more importantly, this would also provide the company with price relief since market demand for RINs would also decrease. Recent price movements following the purported RVA leak illustrate this dynamic. It is also important to note that the implied necessary operating performance metrics are subject to additional downside risks, which require PBF to generate even greater EBITDA or working capital cash generation. These include potential maintenance cap CapEx catch-up payments. Uh, management has noted uh, that the company's annual maintenance CapEx is approximately $500 million. However, since the second quarter of 2020, it has only averaged an annual CapEx spend rate of approximately $300 million. Another downside factor might be CapEx spending on its proposed uh, CalMet renewable diesel project. Finally, as discussed before, if the company's uh, accessible liquidity is less than its quoted operational liquidity of more than $2.6 billion on account of including certain cash in its borrowing base, this would also require increased operating performance. Essentially benefiting PBF, certain California environmental obligations that are included in the company's pre-RFS adjusted EBITDA might be deferrable, extending those payments uh, would positively affect liquidity. However, PBF disclosures on these obligations are somewhat limited. Uh, with that, I will turn it over to Kevin. He will discuss the company's litigation and potential re restructuring considerations. Thank you, Adam. That is a lot of expertise. It sure sounds to this uh, unfrozen caveman lawyer like we've got a company with financial challenges that is betting on the oil industry to win a regulatory lobbying knife fight with the ethanol industry 
and hoping to cludge together a less expensive than $800 million solution to its Bay Area board obligations. So let's talk about what happens if they can't accomplish that. Um, There are several restructuring issues for the company. There is uh, the litigation challenging the board's rule amendments, and I'm just going to call the BAAQMD the board for lack of a pronounceable acronym. Uh, There's the treatment of board obligations in a Chapter 11 sale or reorganization, the treatment of the renewable fuel standard obligations uh, in a Chapter 11 sale or reorganization. The main thing to keep in mind um, from a Chapter 11 perspective, what would be unique about this company's restructuring is the monetization and settlement of these pre-bankruptcy RVO, RFS obligations for a sale or a plan uh, strategy in Chapter 11. Next slide, please. So first, let's talk about the BAA, the board litigation. <laughs> let's do it. Be board litigation that Hannah touched on a little bit earlier. On September 7th, um, Martinez Refinery, the refinery affected by the board's new rules, filed a petition in Contra Costa, California Superior Court to have the amended rules thrown out. Uh, their arguments are that these the, new, the amendments to the rules violate CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, the California Health and Safety Code, and California Common Law. According to the refinery, the board flagrantly ignored fact-finding requirements, failed to minimize adverse socioeconomic impacts, and acted arbitrarily and capriciously. The suit really focuses on the board's alleged failure to consider PBF's proposal for a new particulate matter standard of 0.002 grams. Um, I'm not going to try to get into pulling that acronym apart either. Um, The the past rule was at 0.001 grams, but PBF pushed 0.002 as securing nearly identical reductions without adverse impacts on refiners. That's code for if you had gone with our option, we wouldn't have to even think about spending $800 million to comply with yours. Um, and other refiners wouldn't be in a similar situation. Chevron, for example, has also challenged uh, the board's rules amendments. Um, the, the refinery alleges that the board improperly relied on a 2018 envir- environmental impact report that failed to consider various bad things about the particulate, uh, the 0.001 standard, including a massive consumption of fresh water, additional greenhouse gas emissions, wastewater, and hazardous materials. It really all comes down to the refinery arguing that the board failed to analyze the cost effectiveness and environmental impacts of the 0.01 gram standard and conducted a sham cost benefit analysis. Um, The refinery has asked the court to nullify the board amendments and enjoin the board from enforcing the 0.01 standard. Next slide. So what happens if the company were to file a hypothetical Chapter 11 in the middle of this litigation? Um, Generally, the assumption is that a debtor will want to bring as many actions as possible, at least material actions, into the bankruptcy court. And this could be done via removal from the state court. Um, It seems pretty clear that there would be related to jurisdiction in the bankruptcy court Um, Since the debtor is one of the parties to the litigation, the question would be whether there is core jurisdiction, whether this this challenge to a regulatory requirement that will merely uh, cause the debtors to spend more money to comply is something that arises under the bankruptcy code. Um, Even if there is related to jurisdiction, 
there is the potential that the board could seek a remand to state court or abstention from the bankruptcy court. This comes in mandatory and permissive flavors, but the general considerations are whether there is an independent basis for federal jurisdiction other than bankruptcy, the filing of the bankruptcy case, which here it would appear not, um, whether there is a state forum of appropriate jurisdiction, which here would appear to be yes, and the interests of justice or comedy, which would seem to weigh in favor of the action going back to state court with the California court considering California regulations and law. There's also the possibility that the action could be pulled away from the bankruptcy court into the district court, also a mandatory or permissive standard, but this requires generally uh, consideration and whether the action involves consideration of both Title 11 and other federal laws, which does not seem to be the case, these are state laws, or whether cause exists, that's generally a question of whether a jury trial would be required. So withdrawal of the reference probably weighs in favor of keeping it in bankruptcy court, but the abstention uh, remand arguments probably weigh in favor of sending it back to state court. The key to keep in mind um, in this case and other sort of regulatory challenge cases where a debtor might want to try to bring things into the bankruptcy court for a more favorable or at least more expeditious resolution is that the debtor needs to find a core code hook to remove the regulatory litigation and have the bankruptcy court exercise jurisdiction. A good example of this is the PG&E FERC battle where PG&E convinced Judge Montali to maintain authority over um, a dispute over FERC's regulatory ability, uh, regulatory veto on the rejection of power purchase agreements by convincing the judge that it was a core proceeding because it involved assumption or rejection of contracts under the code. Here, it seems as a preliminary look that um, the company would likely have to face, have to, to end up prosecuting the board litigation in California state court, uh, but you never quite know with bankruptcy judges. Next slide. Now, the treatment of those board obligations in Chapter 11, it's important to keep in mind of a long forgotten section um, that states pretty much the obvious 28 U.S.C. 959. It provides that the Chapter 11 debtor in possession will manage and must manage and operate the property in possession according to the requirements of the valid laws of the state in which such property is situated. This means that the debtor will have to comply with the board's mandates regarding particulate matter uh, emissions, even if it is in chapter 11. Um, of course, here, the board compliance is not yet mandatory. They still have time, as Adam mentioned, to, to spend the money to bring themselves into compliance. So there are no penalties to monetize. Um, so there's no claim issue here, which we'll get into in a second in the RFS context. Um, they will. The debtor would not be able to sell the property free and clear of these regulatory requirements. And once it emerged from bankruptcy, the rules, if they stand up to challenge, would have to be complied with. The takeaway here is debtors and purchasers in Chapter 11 cases generally cannot evade non-monetary continuing regulatory obligations or stay the enforcement of state police powers. What they can do in bankruptcy is, as we talked about with the last slide, try to get a better forum for challenges to regulatory requirements and try to address uh, pre-petition accrued regulatory penalties. Uh, and that's what we'll talk about on the next slide. So assuming that the company were to enter a Chapter 11 with a massive amount of unsatisfied RFS, um, RVO, or, or RIN obligations, 
there's a question of whether the company could uh, treat those in bankruptcy as a claim. Of course, bankruptcy deals with claims or, as the code calls them, a right to payment. Um, generally, that means monetary claims. You owe me a million dollars, but it also can include regulatory commands or affirmative injunctions if a breach thereof would give rise to a right to payment. Um, and this is a highly technical bankruptcy um, determination. But basically, the question is, do these RVO obligations accrued pre-petition, let's say there's 500 million of them, give rise to a right to payment that can be treated as an unsecured claim in a bankruptcy case, in a bankruptcy plan, or stripped off the property under Section 363 in a free and clear bankruptcy sale? Um, in the sec in the Chattagay decision, the Second Circuit said that a, a regulatory obligation is a right to payment if injunction is not the only remedy under applicable law for the regulator. Um, so it appears here that the pre-petition RVO RFS requirements would be a monetary claim. Um, they are expressed in a dollar amount. Payment of these amounts could satisfy the obligations. It's not similar to, say, an, a regulatory injunction telling a party not to violate securities law or um, not to violate uh, some other regulation that requires behavioral modification. So again, the key for and the asset sale situation could be, can the assets be sold free and clear of pre penalties for pre-petition regulatory noncompliance? And the key for the plan uh, strategy is, can pre-petition regulatory obligations be classified and treated under the plan. Now, let's take a look at this in, in practice. Um, next slide, please. The Philadelphia Energy Solutions is really the only Chapter 11 to sort of face down these renewable fuel standards. Um, the company's filed twice. The first filing was in 2018. Um, and the company filed with, with substantial RVO carryover liability for 2016 and 2017 company said it was a key factor in the filing. Now, the first step was the EPA agreed not to enforce those obligations during the bankruptcy case, which arguably it could have done under the police powers exception to the automatic stay. Then the debtors proposed 363 sales of the refineries free and clear of the RVO obligations and anticipated an EPA objection to that. Again, the question is whether the CVO obligations are a right to payment or a regulatory or command or injunction that cannot be reduced to a right to payment. Eventually, rather than litigating over this, the parties, uh, the EPA and the debtors settled. The debtors agreed to retire 138 million RINs, uh, retire another 64.6 million RINs for post-bankruptcy RVOs, and consent to retirement of RINs on a semi-annual basis for post-effective date RVOs through 2022, which the EPA said was a stricter compliance obligation than required. A biofuels producer, interestingly enough, objected, basically arguing that the settlement was a sweetheart deal for Philadelphia Energy Solutions, um, but the court overruled that objection and approved the settlement. Um, so you can see in the first bankruptcy, PES sort of working on that framework we were talking about, felt like it had a good argument that the uh, RIN RVO obligations were a monetary obligation that could be treated under a plan and got a, a deal that at least one biofuels producer thought was way too sweet um, for its regulatory noncompliance. Next slide, please. So then PES filed again in 2019 after one of its Philadelphia refineries exploded. 
Um, the EPA in that case basically was making arguments that the company did not comply with the settlement in first in the first case because it failed to retire sufficient RINs under that settlement. The debtors filed an amended plan that said the court would determine whether the obligations were, quote, injunctive compliance obligations or a dischargeable debt and or a claim under the bankruptcy code. In other words, the settlement from the first case effectively would be undone and the bankruptcy court would have to decide and confront this injunctive relief versus claims issue. Eventually here, again, the parties settled. Uh, the EPA agreed that the debtors would retire 161.8 million RINs for 10 million cash. There was an extra RIN purchase obligation depending on the company's receipt of excise taxes um, should they be recovered. So in both cases, you can see the EPA um, fairly quickly cut a deal with the debtors um, that could be viewed as, as highly favorable. And that should be what people keep in mind when talking about a possible PBF Chapter 11. It's probably not going to help them very much on the California regulatory compliance obligations or in their challenge to those obligations, but it could be of some strategic use in dealing with the renewable fuel standard and RVO requirements. I think that is our last slide. So now we are going to move on to the question and answer portion of our presentation. We've got a few minutes. Let's take a look at the questions that we have here. Um, there's a question. Um, you spoke a lot about the effect of the regulatory obligations on refining. How do you think this all impacts PBF logistics? Adam, I'll let you handle that. Okay. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Um, I guess it's worth pointing out that PBF uh, logistics uh, has the nearest date of maturity in the, in the structure. Um, the PBF notes, PBF, PBFX notes uh, mature in May of 2023. Um, I think PBF will likely do whatever it can to maintain control of logistics and keep it out of bankruptcy. Um, that said, PBF generates EBITDA margins uh, over 60% and their contracts with refining, I think, could face some pressure. Um, in a hypothetical bankruptcy context, uh, refining creditors do not receive credit support from PBFX, um, which would likely motivate them to push hard um, to get these contracts renegotiated. Um, and I think that there'll probably be some success there for PBF and getting this reduced uh, since logistics assets are basically captive. A lot of their assets are captive to PBF or PBS refineries um, kind of limiting their ability to look for other customers. Um, What's so. interesting. And for those of you curious about this, there is a somewhat analogous case going on. Um, the Lime Tree Bay refinery in the USVI, which filed chapter 11 without its logistics partner, um, Lime Tree, the Lime Tree Logistics, which also has a completely different creditor body and is, and there's a tremendous fight already brewing there over rejection of supply agreements and services agreements and that kind of thing and renegotiation of those. So I think you're you're spot on and, and that's happening in that case. Let me ask you another question, because this one cuts right to the bone. What do you think is a sustainable RIN price level for PBF? Uh, that's uh, that's kind of a tough question. Um, so some of the work I've done, I think it's kind of in the 40 cent ish range. Um, and I think the, the reason it's difficult is because 
you have to come up with what you think is a mid-cycle or sustainable um, EBITDA level for each of the, the company's refineries. And in getting there, um, there's a decent amount of historical financials for the East Coast uh, refineries, for the mid-continent refineries, and for Calmet. And then for Torrance, um, you have um, basically the since it was acquired in 2016, the 17 through 19 average you can use potentially. Um, but the West Coast numbers get a little bit muddled because of the Martinez acquisition in 2020. Um, based on some of my assumptions, um, I think that the so pre RFS including a corporate allocation, I get to um, a little less than a billion dollars of pre-RFS adjusted EBITDA as, as an estimate for PBF. Um, obviously, there, there will be good years and bad years, um, but just putting that out as a point estimate. Um, and then if you compare that with their fixed charges, including the, the CapEx and cash interest, which get you to like $760 million combining those um, based on the the current debt load at refining. Um, you need to, it looks like, um, yeah, probably have like a 35 cent to 40 cent uh, price for, for, for the company to be uh, cash flow positive, um, assuming those uh, assumptions. All right, gentlemen, set your algorithms. That's all the time we have for right now. Um, it, there, are, I see we do have some more questions, but we will go ahead and, and reach out directly to those who've asked questions and we haven't had a chance to answer. Thanks for attending today. I hope you, uh, you are blasted with the data and the expertise that Hannah and Adam have provided and amused uh, by what I have suggested. And we will talk to you later. Have an excellent afternoon. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great extended weekend, and see you next Friday.